Hello, I'm Scott Button, and you're listening to Really Queer Voices, a new podcast where I get to talk to some of the most interesting queer artists working in theater, film, drag, and beyond. These conversations were recorded on the unceded, stolen territory of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh Nations, which is also where the artists we spoke to reside. special episode with three theatre artists, Lily Robinson, Trisha Trin, and Anae West. We'll hear about their upcoming projects and the ways they boldly integrate disparate sources of inspiration, ranging from queer Polish punk rock to attachment theory. Hello, welcome to the show, everybody. I'm really thrilled to have three awesome people here with us today on Really Queer Voices. We have Lily, Anae, and Trisha. Welcome, Lily and Tricia. Hey. Hello. Hi. <laughs> and I think we'll start with Lily, if that's all right. Sure. <laughs> Lily Robinson, for folks who don't know, is a playwright, poet, actor, and facilitator based on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. Lily is passionate about centering voices at the intersections of queerness, Black diaspora, socioeconomic diversity, and femme identity in their work. Since graduating Studio 58 in 2018, Lily has worked with companies including Theatre Replacement, Rumble Theatre, Playwrights Theatre Centre, The Frank Theatre Company, and The Arts Club. Her debut play, Mix, won the Fringe New Play Prize in 2019, and a digital version of the play was presented at The Culch through the Cultivating the Fringe Award this past year. Currently, Lily is working on two new plays, Infest and Maroon. She is a founding collaborator on the Vancouver Black Theatre Archival Project, and is the newest resident curator at the Revolver Festival. Welcome to the show, Lily. Thanks. You're a busy person. Yeah. That's a lot of activities to do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on balance. (laughs) Before we got on mic today, you were talking about, you were like, okay, December was going to be my month to relax, but actually I'm still kind of working. And like, tell me about balance, because you work on an archival project. You're a curator, and you're also a quite prolific playwright what what is what does balance look like to you that's a great question um i think it's figuring out how to nourish myself and also do the work i want to do and also pay the bills which is like the the forever question for an artist i feel like um and particularly living in, you know, what we now call Vancouver, um, with our uh, <laughs> like just just revolting <laughs> living costs, like it's um, and and as I get as I get older and think about, you know, what kind of setup do I want in my life? It's like it's really tricky. I'm thinking about it a lot of like how to make how to make the money work while still um, focusing as much of my time and energy on the work that I'm really passionate about and that balancing all that as well with um, my mental and physical health and like figuring out how to work more sustainably has been a big theme for me in the past few years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A sort of triage that you sort of have to do continually and that as self-directed people, it kind of feels like the work never stops, but you realize that the work eventually can kind of suffer for it if you don't 
keep nourishing yourself, especially being an artist. And also we suffer for it. Like as human individuals, not artists, not workers, right? Like like I a few months out of theater school, I got I was really um lucky to get a bunch of opportunities all at once and I I was pretty financially unstable at the time and so I was doing a million things trying to make the money work in like in a really stressful time and I ended up in the hospital because I was so burnt out from doing all the things because that's what they teach us to do is say yes to everything but that's a lie you can't do that without making yourself sick right so I think it's like it's it's I don't want the work to suffer, but I also think it's re- re-shifting to like, we don't need, sh- we shouldn't be suffering either as individuals, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think training programs in general, I, I, my sense is that it's shifting now. I graduated in 2012. It enforces, it encourages this sort of relentlessness, ambition, drive, passion, all of which can be good things, but there's something that on the show that Kati was Kati Q um, was saying yesterday that being joyful is in itself a rebellion, and I think part of being joyful is allowing balance and allowing time to actually nourish yourself and to be healthy. Mm-hmm. And I love what you said that it's not a, even about it, take take yourself as a worker, take yourself as the prolific playwright out of it. It's like just you being a citizen in the world, like <laughs> just trying to live. Yeah, I mean. Always shouting out the nap ministry of like, just as humans, we deserve to rest. Like rest is our right, just as human beings, you yes. know, and, and you don't have to earn it. You know, it's it's a, it's our divine right, as she puts it. And for folks who don't know, tell us a little bit about the, the nap ministry. Oh, yeah, the nap ministry. So if you've if you've um, seen like slogans like rest as resistance, um that kind of thing floating around on the internet. A lot of that is sourced in Trisha Hersey's work. She's a, a black um, artist and writer and thinker from Atlanta, and she runs the Nap Ministry, which is like sort of a, it's like part performance art, part advocacy and activism, part um, community engagement. And yeah, especially over the pandemic, I feel like her work has really like expanded in terms of um, how people are paying attention to it, because I think for a lot of people, the pandemic sort of woke them up to, oh, I I can just be still. And like, this is actually like nourishing and and allows me to be in a way that I can't in the day-to-day grind. And her whole thing is like, you're not a machine. You're not meant to grind, like uh, divest from capitalism. And it's rooted in in sort of her ethic and her history of like her grandmother who was an enslaved person um like basically as as formerly enslaved people you know from the african diaspora it's like those folks survived through catching the little moments of rest that they could right like and she talks about her grandmother like always taking 30 minutes to close her eyes every day whether it's napping daydreaming just that as like sort of a core um practice to keep your humanity that's lovely, Lily. Thank you for sharing that. The NAP Ministry. I'll, we'll attach resources or ways to connect and learn more about the NAP Ministry for listeners with this episode. Trisha. Mm-hmm. Trisha Trin, for folks who don't know, is a queer, gender-fluid, interdisciplinary, Chinese-Vietnamese-Canadian theater artist with a background in directing, playwriting, curating, performing, and producing. A graduate of UVic Phoenix Theater. 
Trin's artistic practice investigates cross-disciplinary synthesis as active ingredients in live storytelling that dissects intersectional identity. They approach theater as the most direct vessel in which we can share with one another our humanity. Creative highlights include June 2018, Trin directed and produced their play Probability at Revolver Festival, founding Dusty Foot Productions, an emerging interdisciplinary female and non-binary centric theater company committed to spotlighting queer POC narratives. In September 2019, Trin directed and produced their play Red Glimmer at the Vancouver Fringe. October 2020, Trin directed a workshop presentation of an excerpt of their play in development Attachments at the Tremors Festival with the support of the Canada Council for the Arts. Since fall of 2021, Trin has been at the helm of Rumble Theatre's new creation events as artistic producer with Liminal Magic this past October and Lupercalia coming up in February 2022. Trin is also the youth program producer for the Frank Theatre Co.'s Telling It Bent program. Trin recently assistant directed We the Same by Sanjita Wiley, a vital narrative that honored their ancestral roots at Ruby Slippers Theatre. You, Trisha, seem to wear a lot of hats and... I am assuming, or I'm, I'm thinking that one bucket of work sort of inf informs the other. Is, is that the way that it feels as you navigate all these disciplines? Mm, I think, you know, all, each work informs the other. So being able to be in the room as a director um, informs my work as a playwright, or being a playwright also allows me more tools as a director in the room. Um, and my work, yeah, I think I transitioned more into a playwriting directing producing um, practice because my performative practice <laughs> wasn't really serving me and I wasn't finding it um, fulfilling in the stories that I was I was seeing and that I was being offered. And so I decided to take a different route and try my hand that way and um, create the narratives that I think need more <laughs> representation. And so, yeah, exactly that. I find I have you know, my fingers in a little bit of this and a little bit of that because it creates sustainability. I can still be in the practice instead of having to juggle multiple different part-time jobs. I can still be within the field and use my creative brain, but just from different viewpoints. And to and I imagine um, in terms of one of, one of the buckets of your work, work Tricia, that working with youth probably connects you I don't know, my sense of folks that work with you, they're able to connect to their, this sounds very cliche, but to their younger self. And and also it gives a sense of, oh yeah, that's who I'm working for. You know, that's who I'm trying to create for. And I'm trying to make things easier for them or make things more fun for them. Is Am, am, I, am I totally off in that? Like what, what what's your feeling and what's your experience working with youth? You're absolutely on point, all of that. <laughs> um, I think for myself, it's like you said, you know, when I was, you know, when, when I graduated out of university, it was quite a tumultuous ride for me. Um, you know, just to backtrack a little bit, I learned a lot about the craft, but what I didn't learn is how to create, like I mentioned, a sustainable artistic practice, you know, i.e. writing grants or proposals or um, doing my taxes or uh, applying for a representation or building an online practice, all that business component that, that makes up being an artist. I mean, I should note this was over 10 years ago, so maybe it's different now. Hopefully it's different now. <laughs> um, but I felt overwhelmed when I came out of uh, university and not to mention I was coming out at a time and it was tricky for me to navigate an identity that I was just unraveling myself um, and how I perceived myself versus how the casting world perceived me. And 
it kept me from fully stepping into my skin. So as an Asian female presenting performer at the time, I was going up for roles that felt tokenizing and and um, yeah, it just it honestly put the fire out for for uh, for how I kind of approached the craft. That sort those for, sort of first few years after graduating mm-hmm. theater school. Yeah. yeah, I was hungry for stories that shine light on like the communities that I existed in and celebrated the joy and resilience in, in those that rich community. And so I think working with youth, it's I always revert back to that is not having not having access to that or not being exposed to that. And so I think it's it's just phenomenal opportunity to work with the Frank to, you know, foster new queer voices and give them room to meet other queers and, and kind of have that safe space to play and, and shine. That's really beautifully put. What the Frank does with for youth and is is so important and so and so vital. I I'm writing a play for youth right now and I'm always struck, especially when it comes to queer youth and and, and POC youth and that in terms of their amount of savvy and their amount of sophistication, their amount of awareness of who they are and who they want to be in the world. And then I think of myself at that age and I think, oh my God, like I, I like when I look at the, at the, at the LGBTQ2S plus youth of the world now, I'm like, I have this amazing admiration. I also feel jealous that <laughs> I wasn't at that point then. I'm so happy for them. I'm also it's a, it's such an interesting interesting feeling and there's so much to learn from them as well. And um yeah, and and it, I think I think it also kind of give when you're connected to to more youth and to more young people it gives you really a clearer drive as an artist to 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 create work for them, you know, and open doors for them as you said because when you were you know, coming out of theater school, it's like you feeling those doors closing. Mm. It's so complicated, right? Like, I think so many of us go to art school or theater school, film school, wherever, at a fairly younger age and, like, before we've figured out a lot and mm. it, and then we can kind of come out before we're sort of done baking. You, mm. you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even going to UVic, too, with the acting program, it was more focused on classical training. And so we did a lot of Ibsen, Chekhov, Shakespeare, that crap. And it's you don't see <laughs> those stories. You don't see POC. You don't see queer stories. And it just it kind of messes with your head. You know, you're teetering between these two, these these boundaries of what identity is and what it is to you. And um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating process. It is, and it never really ends, does it? <laughs> well, thank you, Trisha. Ana, you're in the hot seat, baby. <laughs> Ooh, I love the hot seat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Ana West, for folks who don't know, is a queer, gender-fluid writer, actor, and producer, as well as a Polish settler on the occupied lands of the Coast Salish peoples. Ana's work is multidisciplinary. Through hybrid art, they grapple with the multiplicities that exist in gender, sexuality, culture, and self. Their plays, which merge theater with film, poetry, pop, and punk music, have been presented by Buddies in Bad Times Theater and Theater Pass Marai in Toronto, by Rumble Theaters, Tremors Festival, Queer Arts Festival, ZZ Theater, the Frank Theater in Vancouver, and by the Fresh Fruit Festival in NYC. As the co-writer of Polyqueer Love Ballad, N.A. was the 2018 winner of PTC's Fringe New Play Prize and the Georgia Strait Critics' Choice Award. And he's been nominated for two Jesse Richardson's awards, including Outstanding Original Script. N.A. is the current artistic producer at the Frank Theatre Company. Welcome to the show, N.A. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's so great to talk to you. I love that kind of freedom that you seem to have in terms of 
grabbing at source. And um, I was hoping you could talk about that. Like, what, like what's that about, like, in terms of inspiration and in, in terms of working in these different disciplines? Well, I'm a gender fluid bisexual, so I'm into everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's gorgeous. <laughs> Everything's up for grabs, man. <laughs> yeah, and I say that as a joke, but I also, in all seriousness, I do think the aspect of of self for me that's that's quite fluid and that's quite open to everything is is my approach to my work. Um, I got into theater because I was interested in having community and the community was also gay as fuck, which I loved. Um, but then uh, I always had an interest in other art forms too, um, just as I had an interest in many different types of people in many different ways. And I've always applied that lens to my work. I'm just open to everything. Yeah, I love I love the kind of um, promiscuity, not as a not as a derogatory word, but the promiscuity of of allowing different sources and different possibilities in when it come when it comes to work. I'm very pro promiscuity. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad word. <laughs> Tell us about a little bit about um, Polyqueer Love Ballad. I'm sure you've talked about it quite a lot over the years, um, but it was a show that was quite a big success for you. Yeah, Polyqueer Love Ballad is a show uh, that follows two characters, Nina, who's a bisexual, non-monogamous person, and Gabby, who's a very monogamous lesbian. Um, Gabby's a singer-songwriter, Nina is a slam poet, and they fall in love and try to navigate how to be in love when they have such deferring ways of looking at sex and desire and relationships, um, and they do so through a, an interdisciplinary approach, through poetry, uh, through music, um, and through dialogue. Yeah, and the show, I co-created the show with my ex, Sarah Bickrock, um, who's amazing. And Sarah's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we began the show out of a place of also, if I'm being totally honest, navigating that that difference in our own relationship. So there definitely was... A degree of autobiography there, though, of course, many parts of it are also fictionalized. And I think through that struggle, we also grew a lot both as artists and as people. Um, and we've had a lot of amazing support from the community for the project. Uh, PTC's Fringe New Play Prize really supported it in its development um, at the Fringe. And we did really well at the Fringe. Uh, and we ended up in Pick of the Fringe and, and sold out all of our shows. Um, and then went on to tour the show to uh, Edmonton and Toronto, uh, and yeah, it was just really beautiful to see the response people had to the show. Um, it felt like, and this is where I feel we really did our job, is that when monogamous people saw the show, they always said, oh my God, how Gabby was treated was horrible. Like Gabby was was right. And then when non-monogamous people saw the show, they felt the complete opposite and supported Nina's narrative. So I really felt that we were able to reach that balance between not supporting one perspective over the other but really representing both fairly yeah oh that's that's awesome i remember seeing it it, it was it's interesting because lily your play mix at the fringe played in the same venue i believe that anaise did when it was at the fringe and both shows both very different but i remember seeing both of them i think i know anaise wasn't opening but i think yours was opening lily and both were totally full and they were both experiences in the theater that I really really remember the audience being so engaged for both and a with yours it was like I think I'd gone to see Beyonce <laughs> in Seattle like either it was the year before or maybe it was in like a couple of months before honestly the decibels in the in the audience 
reminded me of the Beyonce concert. People were like <laughs> yes. at a rock show, like having like the best time ever. And then Lily for Mix, I people I, I remember and when you made that offering to the audience in terms of speaking their ancestors, I remember people standing up and this feeling of hearts opening in the theater and this really feeling alive. And I remember the chills that I had. It, it, so it's, it's kind of cool that you're both here here to, today and, and able to talk about that. And I, I, I wanted, I, I'm, I'm so interested in, in this sort of bravery that you and Sarah had in employing your own life story when it comes to, to your work. I, I was hoping to hear from Lily and Tricia as well, like in terms of, you know, I, I know autobiography is very much in vogue. I think what I'm what I'm curious about is is we'll, we'll start with you, you, Lily. In what way do you feel like do you, do you use autobiography in in your work, or is it maybe more indirect? Or tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I pretty directly use autobiography in my work. Um, I think it comes it comes partly out of um, like when I was younger, sort of the first way I started writing and performing that writing was through slam as well through slam poetry and and I think for me writing has always been the way that I process um my emotional life and and um performing parts of that is a way that I um have always found to feel seen right and um and so for me, yeah, most of my work starts um, from things that I am personally working through. And and I think that's true for most writers to some degree, but it's just like how how obscured does your part of that get in the writing process, right? And so like with Mix, it was very directly, I'm trying to figure out what it means to be a mixed-race queer person. And so how... <laughs> How does this character figure that out? And then expanding from there into sort of a clown, magical realism, um, mythological stylizing. Um, yeah, but I would say my my stuff is pretty directly autobiographical a lot of the time, but often with sort of a layer of magical realism put over it. Yeah, yeah. I lo- And I love, again, I think there's something uniquely queer about accessing again coming back to that word of promiscuity the access to different forms like and with mix you you know using magic realism using clown i remember seeing the the filmed version of it and like using i felt like horror movie metaphors and using game show metaphors and and using television metaphors and just like being like it's all up for grabs baby and like you know with and then using all those styles within a very personal story Mm -hmm. is is very it's it's very interesting it's it's a really really cool way of working thanks scott (laughs) and trish and trish out in terms of your own personal stories using them in your writing where, where does that live for you right now uh you know i pull bits and pieces from my life for sure and i think naturally a playwright's voice will seep through, but it's not so much. I tend to lead towards uh, fiction and theory-based work, uh, more so than autobiography. And so for me, my writing process is more like, it starts with this gnawing question that I kind of get obsessed with, you know, which leads me to researching, which leads for answers, and then that leads me to theories. And then I kind of, from there, I, I try to switch the lens and go, okay, what does it look like through this lens? And could it be this? And then you know, type, 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 and there it is. 
Tug, 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 and there, and there it is. And there, and no, there I, I it. wish it's more like trudging through with thick, thick mud. <laughs> but your skin feels amazing after. So. Exactly. It's like it's like a clay mud yes, exactly. treatment. Very exfoliating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish it was exfoliating. Writing is rarely exfoliating. <laughs> it, it, but I, I theory based. Tell us more about that. I love I love hearing about writers in terms of the. I love when they're able to share about the the biography that exists, and I also love hearing about these sort of the works that they're marinating in as they're working on something. Tell us about the theory-based approach. Again, it starts with a question. So my first play was, uh, you know, the big what if. Just going to give you a little rundown. The first play, Probability, was about what if. And then the second play, Red Glimmer, was... um, It was about... I had heard that uh, humans cannot re-experience somatic sensory sensation like pain. So you, if you get punched in the mouth, you know, you know that it hurt, but your your body won't actually let you relive that experience. And so I tried, I was interested in that physical aspect of healing. You know, if you get a cut in your hand, you tend to it, you clean it, you put antibacterial cream, and then, you know, it it, it gets better. And with emotional pain, I was like, okay, well, if we don't tend to it the same way that we do physical pain, then it, we relive it in a way that feels immediate all the time. And so I took a sci-fi approach and was like playing with the idea of uh, what if a scientist was hired to go into a woman's mind and kind of navigate her neurological pathways to um, fast track the healing process, emotional healing process with an emotional facelift. And so it's like that. Uh, My latest play, Attachments, is all about attachment theory. Um, It explores attachment theory. Yeah, and it, 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 that, that, oh, I love I love the sound of your of your sci-fi work in terms of not only using that genre but also using that genre as a way into those kind of questions and and the attach attachment theory is and like the sort of attachment this is something I'm not very familiar with like in terms of attachment styles like secure attachment and things like that I only know the very general sort of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of take a spin on it so I, with my latest play attachments it's um it follows six queer characters and they're all from immigrant families right as they navigate this intersectional polyamorous relationship and um it aims to dissect how our first relationship with our parents bleeds into all our future relationships Mm. that's where the attachment theory comes in and um it double casts the lovers as their partner's parents and so you see oh. them, you see them in the lover aspect and they flow between the parent aspect and then back to the lover. And then you see where these characteristics kind of submerge between the two characters and explores, you know, <laughs> um, why are we drawn to folks that may be similar to our parents or like, are we? And, you know, can those those intrinsic behaviors that you get from your first attachment, can they be unlearned or can can they shift throughout your life? And what excites me about this this written form in attachments is smack dab in the middle of the story, all six characters individually visit their parents for dinner. And, you know, I feel you truly come to understand someone when you meet their family. Um, this familiar, familial, Danner, wow, this familial, am I saying that right? Familial? Familial, yeah, familial? I think so. This familial dinner scene. Also, also, you're doing great. <laughs> you're doing amazing, sweetie. Um, yeah, this familial dinner scene, it aims to kind of just shake up the dramaturgical format of the classic dinner scene um, that we're used to by toying with simultaneous dialogue in Cantonese, Japanese, Spanish, Italian, and English. 
And um, yeah, that's to explore the struggles and privileges between class, culture, gender, and generation in queer polyamorous relationships. You know, when you mention something about queer approach, I'm like, that's interesting to me because my approach is more focused on intersectional you know, a lived experience. Yes, I'm queer, but that's that's one piece of a full pie for me. I'm many other things, and it's I'm just I'm very intrigued about uh, folks that teeter between these different slices of the pie. And I think, you know, when I was younger, I I <laughs> I pulled away from my ancestral roots, pulled away from my family because I felt like, how can I create my art if I'm so attached to them and they're overbearing and this? But um, now, as I get to get older older I'm leaning more in towards that because I find like that's that's my roots that's how that's who I am that's how I perceive the world I come from you know Vietnamese Chinese immigrant parents but I'm also gender fluid and queer and that's just there's so many different layers in all of that and so that's what I'm trying to explore with attachments we'll see what happens (laughs) that sounds very very interesting and 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 I and I I I love the ambition that's within that too you're taking that kind of well-established forms and then sort of turning them on their head and and thank you for also for what you were saying in terms of you know queerness is just one one part of you you, that you're an intersectional that your work is intersectional you know and and so and i really appreciate you uh, stating that you know it's funny i actually wrote the piece over 10 years ago in university and we did this workshop presentation and then to revisit a work after so long it's very (laughs) humbling um (laughs) but it's it's a nice testament to you know, your growth as a person, as an artist, and um, just the transition and how you, you've become, you know, who you are. Should we take a little break? Is that okay? Yeah. And hey, I love what you're wearing today. People can't, people can't see it, but I'm just like, my God. My God, what would you describe this? This is this strikes. I'm not even gonna attempt. You, you go, you go. What is this? What are you wearing? It's like an art student repurposed their grandmother's quilt and a couple of other items into a fashionable sweater. <laughs> that is, that's a really good description, actually. <laughs> that's far better than what I would have done. Like, because it kind of has this sort of like, wow, this metaphor is about to get really heavy-handed. What I'm struck by is this really um, mix of textures. And I'm struck by that within your work, too. <laughs> Where are you going with this? Where are you going with this? Wow, that's a heavy-handed transition. But I do, I do, want, to dis- I do want to hear a little bit uh, uh, from, more from you, Anae, in terms of, um, like, you, you described yourself with such self-possession. I'm a bisexual, gender-fluid person in, in, in your intro. And, and I, hear, I hear that, and I, and I see the things you do, and I'm like, fuck yeah. And have you always been that person? Have you always been so self-possessed? Like, what, what's that journey been like for you? I was an incredibly awkward child with a unibrow who stuffed her bra with, like, tissues to make myself look like I had bigger boobs. It's very awkward. So I've definitely not been self-possessed for most of my life, and it's been a long process of growing that. Um, but I think I've always been an outsider and... My journey has been, in a cliched way, I think, for a lot of queers, is my journey has been about owning my otherness and my outsider status and letting that be my strength as opposed to my weakness. Yeah, like let's repurpose the things that we don't like and the things that we 
you know, would rather hide away from. And, and actually, those are the things that we can amplify and the things that we can really be proud of. Yeah. And I think that it applies to both what I want to write about and how I want to write about it, right? Like, I think that otherness, that in-betweenness, um, it's both mirrored in my practice and the subject matter I choose to write about. So I'm not a very interested in straight theater, and I mean that as a bit of a pun, <laughs> but <laughs> <Totally>. also literally <laughs> and figuratively. Um, I, I find that theater where it's just a couple of people talking, kitchen sink dramas interest me less. I'm more interested in, um, yeah, theater that's incorporating different mediums, that's hybrid styles of working. I just think it really has an opportunity to explore characters that are at the nexus of various different things, whether it's cultural, linguistic, um, sexual, or, or, or gender um, aspects. Yeah. And are you doing that currently with, with any, any new or upcoming projects? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's really been a through line through a lot of what I've done. Um, but I do have this very baby, baby, little sprout of an idea that I just applied for some grant funding for. That's, that's a new project. Um, it's called Chłopczyca, which means tomboy in Polish. And uh, it's going to be a live performance using movement, theater, and video to examine and disrupt how Polish culture genders the body. Um, it follows an AFAB assigned female at birth, a non-binary teen and settler as they navigate the expectations of their immigrant Polish parents and Polish community. And so in the show, the teen is thrust into this very highly gendered environment of Polish folk dance where they have to perform cultural rituals of femininity. Um, and I've become really interested in rituals of femininity and masculinity and gender in, in different cultures, um, in those aesthetics as well. Like as a, as a trans person who's assigned female at birth, um, how do we draw from, like where do we draw our ideas of masculinity from, Right. If we only have toxic models to build off of, what do we do? Like, how do we define masculinity for ourselves? And that's something that I'm really interested in exploring in this piece. Um, and my collaborator on the piece, uh, Tanya Markwad, is uh, also a non-binary person of Magyar descent, so Hungarian descent. Um, and so we both have been really interested in finding uh, a positive side to Eastern European masculinity because so much of Eastern European masculinity is is, is very toxic. It's <laughs> it's very fraught. It's tied to stoicism, violence, white supremacy, and nationalism. Um, so yeah, I guess we're curious about what masculinity could look outside of these ideals, and is it possible to still have a cultural connection outside of these ideals? Wow, that sounds that sounds great. And and to do it with a with a co collaborator um, who is as cool as Tanya is, that's so exciting. You've come a long way from being the unibrowed bra stuff person, you know, but of course the, the cool thing is that actually that person is still there and still inside you and that outsider is still inside you and the kind of rebel is still inside you as you as you move forward and make that new project. Well, I'll, I'll certainly be looking out for it. Could you say the name of it one more time for us? Chłopczyca. Chłopczyca, which is tomboy in Polish. Yeah, and the spelling is something that uh, a lot of English speakers wouldn't expect, so it's C-H-L with the little line through it, O-P-C-Z-Y-C-A. 
Cool. So, yeah. Cool. Indecipherable to English speakers, which is basically all of Polish forever. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And this sort of exploration of how to take on masculinity and how to embody that, how to write about it when all of the role models are toxic is is very interesting. My, my partner is uh, is transitioning right now and uses they, she pronouns and is medically transitioning. And we, we have this I think it's very funny, the sort of running gag of me being like a toxic male around her and being like, eh, toots. But just to kind of skewer that and just be stupid. But it is like, as I now move forward with a female partner, I'm like, it's been a really interesting kind of transformative experience in terms of how I view and how I metabolize masculinity for myself. Your play sounds really, really interesting and in how it's going gonna, it's gonna to tackle that. Thanks. Yeah. If folks are interested in reading more about how to define masculinity outside of toxic maleness. I'm actually reading this book right now that's really interesting. It's by Jack Halberstam. It's called Female Masculinity. And it's really interesting because Jack actually wrote it before he transitioned um, and wrote it as a butch lesbian. And then years later wrote a foreword when they republished the book, sort of recontextualizing it. Um, so while it was written quite a while ago and has some dated ideas, there's also this reflection on it that's quite interesting from our current moment. Cool, cool. Jack Halberstam, what was the name of it? Female Masculinity. Female Masculinity. Okay, we'll leave that, along with the NAP ministry, we'll leave that in the in terms of sources, the bibliography for the for the listener. Thank you, Anae. Lily, I wanted to I wanted to pivot back to you because I wanted to hear about your new works, if you would be would be so kind. You because you're working on two new new plays right now. Uh, Maroon and Infest. Infest. Well, it's a good segue, actually, because uh, Maroon, which is like similar to what um, uh, Ne was just talking about in terms of being at the like seedling stage of a of a piece, Maroon is also in that place and is also is uh, examining similar themes from a very different uh, angle. But what you were saying about uh, like I'm very intrigued by this book, female masculinity, and like. Um, these dynamics of of gender and gender presentation, and particularly in terms of um, masculinity and like recontextualizing it, and and trying to figure out um, what that might be outside of all the toxicity that it has become entrenched in, and and yeah, where gender fluid people fit inside that and where folks like AFAB folks sit inside that, as particularly transmasculine AFAB folks, is like one of the things I'm interested in exploring in Maroon. So it's interesting that you bring that up because I'm like, oh, similar segue. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I mean, like I said, it's still in very early um, stages, and so you'll hear as I describe it, it's in the kind of place where it's like there are several different aspects that are going to come together, but how we will see. <laughs> um, but basically, I'm in, I'm really interested in Afrofuturism as a as a lens of um, unpacking gender and sexuality, and also like how do we deal with white supremacy and and the marks that it has left on um, particularly black people? So so basically it started with this idea of 
of this transmasculine character who gets pulled back in time from present day and meets his uh, birth family. So he's he's also adopted, transracially adopted, and gets pulled back in time and meets his birth family a few generations back. Um, so from moving from Vancouver present day to Buffalo uh, 1920s, which is also where my family on my father's side, my black side, is is rooted in those last couple generations. Um, so is a place that I'm interested in investigating more about, and, and I'm interested in investigating, um, for me, the same as in Mix, like this theme of when you've been disconnected in different ways from your culture, when you maybe feel disconnected from the gender that the world has put on you like how do you sort of repair those connections and move back to what is true for you and what is your essence and and what is in terms of culture what you're attached to through ancestry and so that that's a starting point for this show as well and and this other layer again it's it's so it's so young <laughs> it's like I'm finding how these all fit together but um other layer is that once he is back in in uh buffalo in this boarding house run by his great aunt um there is sort of these these ghosts and spirits that start to show up from older ancestors lost in the Middle Passage, which is basically the forced journey across the Atlantic that um, enslaved people in the transatlantic slave trade were, you know, forced to go through. And a lot of people died. <laughs> Fun fact, a lot of people died on slave ships. And and the thing that I'm most interested in inside of all this, that it's kind of a hint of how it ties together, is this idea of... Um, Fugitivity. So that's where this the title Maroon comes from. Is um, Maroon communities were communities, in, particularly in Jamaica, but like Jamaica and the Caribbean, but also in the states and and in uh, Latin America as well, were escaped slaves who created communities outside of slavery and outside of white supremacy, and often in places where white settlers didn't want to didn't want to settle right and so this idea of like creating your own world that is outside all of all of the shit i think resonates for queer folks resonates for black folks resonates for people at the intersections of those things resonates for people whose gender doesn't feel right right and like um what does it mean to create a world outside of what's been set out for you and so last piece of this long bit is just um the other question that I'm looking into is like for folks, this is getting, I guess, trigger warning for for uh, transatlantic slave trade and its brutality. You know, slaves would be cast overboard for insurance money. There's a um, there's a there's a book all about the the Zong massacre where 150 enslaved African people were cast overboard because the ship couldn't afford to get them all the way to the quote new world, right? So they were like, oh, well kill all these people, but to them it was, we'll get rid of this cargo and um, and then we'll be able to get the insurance money. So there's those cases, and there's also cases of enslaved people committing suicide into the water, and, and I'm interested in the Atlantic as like a, a maroon space of its own, like as a, a space of choice and liberation in that situation. That was a long tangent, but that's where <laughs> that's where that show is. And Infest, which I can summarize a lot shorter, is uh, based on 
my experiences growing up in social housing and um, the sort of interracial dynamics between different families in in a BC housing building. And I worked on that with the um, Arts Club Emerging Playwrights Unit in 2020. Yeah. 2020 and and so that one for me is a little bit on the back burner right now but is still in process as well both work sounds so fascinating and and i'm so inspired in hearing about both of your pieces seeing that continuation of using autobiography as well as grabbing at sources with maroon grabbing it a wealth of historical information and and in terms of your work in a grabbing at all these different sources and all these different hybrid inspirations and and also a co-collaborator. And I also I want to thank you both for sharing in terms of works and development. I, I know the sort of, it almost feels violent to me in a way to pin down your idea almost before you want to talk about it because it narrows every other possibility. You know, thank you for doing it with so much articulateness. It's nice because it also forces you to bring it into reality a little bit too though, right? And like, even though, especially with Maroon, there's lots of things that I'm like, I I identify as a gender fluid person, not a more um, binary trans person, like, and and not exactly as trans masculine. So there's lots that I'm like, I got to figure out my whole like community community engagement and consultation process, right? But I feel like it's also like saying a thing out loud kind of it's a things can always change but also it holds you accountable to what you did say right like at the same time yeah Yeah, totally and what you said lily also makes me think you know there's always an element of fantasy or fictionalization in so much of i think folks's work and for myself there's also that degree of separation in hopchitsa where even though um I am a child of a Polish immigrant mom and I was raised by a Polish immigrant mom. I had a weird Polish immigrant mom, you know, one who was like surprisingly progressive because she was an outsider very much in her own community in Poland. And so um, a lot of the experiences that I'm going to be writing about, I am going to be doing a bunch of interviews with folks who are raised by Polish immigrant parents to hear more about folks who lived in more conventional Polish households, which are usually Catholic, where they usually have two parents and they're often very a lot more patriarchal, um, whereas, yeah, the model in terms of, like, the family dynamic I had was very different and not the customary one for Polish families. If any families at that point, I was when I was in school, I feel like there was actually very few single parents. And, yeah, so it was um, so definitely that research part and that sort of imaginative leap of going, okay, this is my experience, but, like, what if I pull it a little further? And also the sort of, I guess, the joy in imagining possibilities, too, I think is really important when being in those early generative stages of creation. Mm-hmm. And not and not rushing it, you know, and 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 really t- taking the time to do as as you're both saying of of the installing those processes, those consultations, that research time. I, I feel like again talking about the kind of hustle that we're encouraged to always do in terms of ch- churning stuff out, churning stuff out, churning stuff out. It's like, in a way, it is sort of rebellious to be like, I'm going to spend five years with this thing, and let's see what happens. You know, like I. I'm so into that. Like, let's let's marinate in things as long as it takes. You, hearing stories about people that just sit with things, it's like, let's give ourselves room for that. Yeah, Trisha was saying that when we were on a little break, that they're doing that with one of their pieces. And we were just talking about how it's, like, so refreshing, right? Sometimes That's so needed sometimes. Taking a step back, you get really close to it, and you need to take a step back, and it gives you a whole different access point. 
yeah, close to it and the deadlines and the this and the like, oh, I've got to be successful. I've got to be seen. I've got to, people have to know, you know, and taking yourself out of that and being like, actually, first thing first, I got into this because I'm an artist and because I want to express something and the way to do it properly is to actually take enough time, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so, t- so tell us about what that's like for you right now, Trisha, in terms of being able to take a step back with your, is this with a, a particular project or, or sort of just generally? I think generally, just throughout the pandemic, it's like you were saying, from an early age, we go from schooling to schooling to schooling, and we're taught to hustle, hustle, hustle. And then when you're let out into the world, suddenly you're just, for myself, floating in this weird realm of I have so much time and I want to get all this done, but then I, I suddenly more time gives me more anxiety than less time. And um, it's it's a funny thing to navigate because I find I, Again, when I have less time and I schedule in more and I, I, I get more done because I'm like the pressure of having to get it done. And even as a writer, I have to give myself these deadlines to to reach or else it just percolates in my head and it's just me there <laughs> and it's floating. Um, but yes, with the pandemic, I found that how can I, if I don't take care of this and I don't myself and do what serves me here, then how can I translate that onto into my work, onto the page? Tell the story that needs to be told. Yeah, absolutely. You you told us a little bit about your your kind of up, upcoming project in terms of the attach the the work on attachment, which which sounds fascinating. And tell us like what what else is kind of coming up for you, be it writing or directing or facilitating or teaching. What what's kind of on the the twenty twenty two twenty twenty three window for Trisha? And also saying. I don't know. Is, is I, totally I don't acceptable, know. Acceptable I don't know. Answer. This is me trying to take my break to hibernate and uh, yeah. just come back to me and, and do a little, take some baths, you know? Oh, I love that. I want to I wanna kind of blow this thing out. Let's blow this thing wide open right now. <laughs> Let's do it, baby. Oh, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear what, what folks are, are really, like, stimulated by right now. It can be, it can be, like, it can be anything. What are people into? Like, what's giving you the good vibes like what's giving you energy um what's entertaining you what's kind of challenging you i just i watched half of um single all the way a netflix film it's basically like a hallmark movie on on netflix it's like although jennifer coolidge is in it and oh my god jennifer coolidge is in it she can do and and i and i have to say i I am mesmerized by her as a as an on-screen presence she's incredible and so that's something that I watched last night. But what? Tell us, any anybody? What, what's coming up to mind for for people? Yeah, well, I've been very inspired by the queer and feminist artist activists that've been coming out of Poland. It's been a huge uh, piece of inspiration for a lot of my work recently, especially because the environment in Poland is is currently so dangerous for queer people, and so a lot of the art coming out of there is very much based out of a real need to to protest um, the regime. Uh, Poland was named the worst country for LGBTQ people by the ILGA um, in the European Union. And, um, well, first of all, the government has used queer people as a scapegoat. They've very much demonized them in all of their campaigns. This is uh, the Law and Justice Party. And... Uh, there's also a lot of legislation that's incredibly queerphobic and transphobic. For example, trans people um, have to sue their parents to be able to legally change their name and gender. 
they have to actually take their parents to court and prove that their parents raised them as the wrong gender and that their parents were wrong and sue them and spend money on lawyers to be able to change their, yeah, their government papers. That's horrendous. Yeah, but I think the the silver lining to, and again, I don't want to ever insinuate that someone's pain needs to have a silver lining, but I think some of the art that's coming out of there is quite incredible um, in terms of its, its activism. So, uh, for example, one artist that I've been really inspired by is uh, Shiksa, which is a band that performs these sort of very aggressive neo-punk feminist anthems that are part poem, part song, part screaming match. And it's basically this this girl who <laughs> dresses in these like bananas costumes and um, her one bass player. And she has these like site specific performances where like performers are like all around her. And she just like moves through the crowd, like yelling at people, these like totally bananas things in Polish. And it's stuff that very much is, 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 is still quite controversial there. So like she has this one narrative where she's just talking about... Um, uh, it's like a wrestling match between different countries and about th- uh, this friend of hers who was a Middle Eastern activist who was like beaten in Poland because of xenophobia there or whatever. Like she talks about these very contentious issues, but it's in this very aggressive in your face kind of way that I really appreciate. Also, uh, Katarzyna Perlak, who combines Polish folk costumes and aesthetics with queer narratives and bodies and Karol Radziszewski, who founded the Polish Queer Archives Institute, and a gay magazine called Dick Fagazine, which is like oh the best God. name for a magazine That's anyone could ever come up with. <laughs> Dick Fagazine. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah. You do those moments where you're like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think I could think of that. Like, I I think he was the right person, you know? Yeah, Carol yeah. knew what was up. Like, he... <laughs> um, right yeah. person, right time, right place. Totally. Dick <laughs> um, Yeah, and just quickly on the local level i also i've been really inspired by the alternative drag scene here in vancouver which i was very excited to hear that you're bringing on some drag folks for your next episode it's fucking badass like especially the work that a lot of the non-binary and gender queer performers are doing that merges drag with performance art and aspects of theater um i just it, it's been blowing me away and i want to especially shout out the darlings who can honestly just like take my money whenever mm-hmm mm-hmm <laughs> I'm so struck by the Darlings production value and not that production value should be the gold standard, but I'm struck by the rawness plus production value. And that really takes my breath away with them. You're really, really important and special here. Yeah. Thank you, Anae. Lily, what about you? What's stimulating you right now? It could be art. It could be, it can be anything. Yeah. Um, One thing that came to mind when you asked that was I recently found a podcast on HowlRound Theatre Commons, which is like a, um, I'm going to describe this really poorly. It's like a hub for uh, progressive theater stuff, right? Like it's like based out of the States, but it's global. And I think anyone can like submit content. And a lot of it is around like decolonial theater and sort of how we move forward to a better theater industry, right? And I found this podcast by this pair of like young scholar, theater critic, writer, black women in the States about black theater now and historically through a black feminist perspective. And that was very exciting for me because I haven't really 
found anything like that up to now um, in terms of like a cohesive something like a podcast that is like engaging with black theater in real time. And and I'm curious, I mean, I'm curious if something exists like that in Canada so far. I haven't found it if it does, but I think it should. But yeah, I've been really stoked because it's giving me a lot of like good reading lists for the holidays. I mean, I'm like, I should be reading all of these plays. <laughs> and, and they also kind of come at it from a somewhat of an academic perspective. So they include like articles and things that are like sort of their reading list for the episode as well as plays. So that's been really exciting. That's very exciting. Any plays in particular that you're like, oh, I got to get to that? I mean, like all of them, <laughs> but of them. Yeah. I also want to get out to Toronto and get more of a, because I feel like then I'd have a clearer sense of like what Canadian black theater, like the sort of new stuff that is coming out in our milieu, but hearing also about like some of the hot new productions happening in the States and on Broadway, one that that came up that sounds really fascinating is called Colored Water. Um, and it's about Flint and the, the water crisis there. And just seeing production photos and I don't know. It's just very inspiring and also hearing about all these different productions in relationship to each other and what they're all drawing on um, as sort of their roots is very, I keep using the word exciting, but it is exciting to me as someone who feels connected and not connected to that as like someone with uh, African-American parentage, but I've never lived in the States or anything like that. So just having piecing these things together, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm reminded as you were talking about Maroon, re I was reading about Anna Devere Smith's Los Angeles 1992, I believe it's called, which I think is, I don't know if it's being remounted or if, I don't know if it's a, a new production, but a really exhaustively researched look at LA in 1992. At that time, like a cross-section of all aspects of culture. And it, I was kind of thinking about that as you were talking about Maroon. It, it, despite the pandemic, it is such a still a very, very exciting time in theater. It's, it's wonderful the accessibility to hear about works internationally and the things that are inspiring you and the ways for you to feel connected. Totally. Yeah. Trisha, what about you? What's, uh, what's inspiring you? What's feeding you right now? Um, you know, in the last year, I think I'll do a local shout out. I was really inspired by Awake of Vultures, K Body and Mind by Connor. Yeah, yes. so good. Yes, Connor Wiley. Um, it was, it was just a beautiful marriage between digital and theatrical presentation. The genre of writing, cyberpunk, and anime—it already exists in this digital world, and to put it on a stage in a theatrical presentation to me was super innovative. I mean, I love both genres, so maybe I'm biased. <laughs> um, but when I think of those genres, I immediately go to graphic novels or TV or film that's really highly stimulated. But um, their approach, it was more, it, it stripped all that excess away and it presented this genre through like a bare minimalist style, which requ required like great attention to detail. I don't know. It was like, um, yeah, the minimalist costume design, staging, lighting, it just allowed for so much room for imagination, you know, to me. It had quite a hypnotic effect. Yes, yeah. yeah. Even that opening scene where it's just this like chase off of jumping off of rooftops and they're chasing. It was just like the simplicity of the voice acting and the sound design, which it was like the <sighs> like that I could just like imagine I could see. And it was it was just so fun for me. I don't know. I'm a big fan. 
Uh, before before we wrap, what's one silly thing? I'd love to hear. Like let let's let's be silly for a sec. What what's <laughs> Michelle is like, oh my god, what are you doing? <laughs> Michelle is our fearless co-producer, sound designer. Here I am, um, just listening. Just li- trying just li- to make, make things sillier. What's a silly thing that happened to you recently? Um, I, I really hate to put you all on the spot like this because I Why hate... Why don't you talk more about single all the way until people come? <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay, that's a good idea. Um, I guess during the pandemic, I did spend too much time online, and I was really troubling within myself this... I think pre-pandemic, I really had due to training, due to growing up in the theater, perhaps an elitist view of like what high art, what's sophisticated, what this, you know, what what that is. And I really became interested in this thing of like high and low art and and also how things are sort of disseminated online and what's built to be disseminated online. Not that that's a metric of something that's really interesting, but, you know, spend any time on kind of like queer Twitter and it's like a... a, a barrage of like real housewives of new york kind of like weird stuff and i'm like and and as and i'm working on uh, on a project about a intellectual who is disgraced and and i'm thinking about that kind of those sort of lines between high and low art so i'm like yeah i will watch single all the way because i think when i was 25 i'd be like no i can't i can't i can't watch any of that stuff but like now i'm a bit more relaxed and i'm like yeah it's poison and i'm drinking it you know, <laughs> you know what i mean like, treat yourself <laughs> treat yourself yeah you know scott i've had a very similar journey in the pandemic um i uh, I'm so i'm actually really comf- i was feeling very uncomfortable as i was revealing this i felt i felt no totally yeah i've had a very similar journey so Recently, my roommate told me, every time I come downstairs and you're watching TV alone, all you're watching is, like, weird art house films from, like, France or Poland that are maybe gay and, like, really experimental and, like, who the fuck are you? Like, you must be someone who actually watches crass TV like everyone else. And I totally, I am. I have fallen down a few rabbit holes during the pandemic. Um, I, I finally watched the film Jennifer's Body. Has anyone oh, yeah. seen Jennifer's Body? I, I haven't. That's the Megan Fox, right? Yes. The Gen- yeah. yeah. And I watched it because it has sort of become a cult classic of bisexual representation. It's like this gorno, just bizarre film that's kind of camp and kind of terrible. Um, so I did watch that because it actually ended up on the Criterion channel. It made it. Made it. Yeah. I was like, now I can watch it. Um, and Anae's filter. If it's not on Criterion, I can't do it. Like, <laughs> um, and the other thing I started watching, uh, and I was just telling Trisha this, I fell down the drag race rabbit hole. I oh, was yeah. really resistant to drag race for a long time because and fair, I, and fair enough. Yeah, yeah. And like, fair enough. I, I have, it's, it's a carnival of issues. Totally. It's, I have a know. lot of issues with obviously RuPaul's transphobia, um, as well as yeah, the lack of inclusion of, of gender queer people. Um, the list goes on. There's there's many problems for sure. Um, but I I was <laughs> the the gateway drug to, to watching this was essentially um, I I know a drag performer. Kendall Gender, who's amazing, who is appearing on Canada's Drag Race, and so I started watching. And to she's support. doing very well. Yeah, yeah. And she so is. is Gia. Yeah, I know another, another local queen. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I knew of or kind of knew these these folks, and so I was doing. I was watching to support them, and then I totally got sucked in, and I ended up watching like binge watching all of season eleven of RuPaul's Drag Race because I was following the like. Okay, I don't know how much people follow any of this stuff. I've but, seen it all. Okay, so like. <laughs> 
the ro- you Seen know how there's like the romance between Brooklyn Heights and and Vanjie. I was like totally on board. I was shipping them really hard, and so I just watched all of season eleven just to get like the full experience of their relationship. I love I love that. I literally was like, oh, when I found out they broke up after, I was so sad. I was like in a deep dark depression for days. Anyway, it's totally ridiculous, and it's and it's it's. It, at, at its best, it's camp, and it's and there are some folks who've been featured on it who are like you know incredible, um, black people of color, like gender queer folks. But uh, overall, of course, the container has a lot of issues. Um, but I yeah, I fully admit I binge watched the shit out of that. Yes, yeah, I remember I I couldn't watch it. I think when I was like when I was younger, because of this, it's it's so produced. I mean, it is a reality television product. And what I love about the kind of kind of art house and the more experimental work is like they don't shepherd and even K body of mind comes to mind. They don't shepherd your attention. It's up to you to have an interpretive experience. And that's gorgeous. And it's important. And then there's also a time and place for an extremely produced experience where I'm feeling and thinking the exact thing that they want me to feel. Like, like that's make that's I think that's like my bottom self coming out. It's like, just tell me what to do, tell me what to feel. Like, I just want to submit. Just like, just just take me, take me for like sixty minutes. I'm yours. Like, you know? and if I can add one thing about Drag Race and what it. I, what it means to the queer community um, before we move on is just that uh, actually in a I've been thinking a lot lately about how reality TV is actually really interesting from a, like a philosophical analytical level and drag race in particular in terms of like what it represents for queer culture. Uh, yesterday I was facilitating a conversation with queer artists for the Q to Q conference and one artist when we were talking about what defines queer art they said is drag race even queer. And I was like, yeah, that's the question, right? Like, is something queer just because it has gay, lesbian, bi, trans people in it? Or is it an aesthetic or a politic or a sensibility? Like, is there more to it? And I think Drag Race has become this sort of test of, like, how far can we push something that we know straight people are watching for enjoyment and that, in a way, I think caricatures aspects of our community um, and some of the worst aspects of our community. And... In in that way, it's sort of the cipher for like a whole bunch of other issues that I think also are in specifically gay male communities, too. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, it's it's interesting in that way. I think as a I would like to if I'm going to try to uh, redeem myself for watching it, I'll say I was watching it from like a sociological perspective. standpoint of, of analysis and, and 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 honestly i i know we like i know you're saying that in a kind of facetious way but like but tr- but truly and it's this and that's also why i watch single all the way um <laughs> all right what's everybody else's trash let's hear it yeah. i was just gonna say though with rupaul's drag race it's like it's nice to just sometimes like i don't watch reality tv shows but with that one i did because it just it was almost like a like Project Runway meets like Next Top Model slapped together, you know? And sometimes it's so just like relieving to just let go and not have to think and just enjoy something for aesthetic purposes. Like having them be challenged to make these elaborate costumes within a time frame and and just being able to enjoy that aspect of it or even just the, you know, um, the lip sync battles like little things like that it brings back the joy <laughs> and I don't have to you know if I sat down and analyzed it in a certain way of course it's gonna be problematic for myself but if I just kind of turn off that part and just enjoy it's 
again, it's, it's it's trash that sometimes feeds the soul. And it's and 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 I do think you're saying something interesting. And I, I don't mean this to become a RuPaul's Drag Race podcast because there are legion. <laughs> There's of, too many oh, of those there, already. There are too many of those already. But I think you hit something interesting, Trisha, in that like the spectacle of say a lip sync, for instance, and what we also probably feel watching drag is like I watch drag, local drag, as well as elements of drag race and i'm like that's what theater is missing that's what so much of theater is yes. missing is that spectacle yes and mm-hmm. the fun yes. and the rowdiness and the feeling of like oh she she's not gonna do and she's gonna like she's gonna pull her wig off yeah. <laughs> you know, like like you know like all that like and the shock and the surprise and the delight it's like i i could feather that into my work a bit you know yes, like you know take it there and let's let the gay as fuck out i think absolutely <laughs> well and also i i feel like some of the most uh most provocative performance art i've seen lately has been in drag and not in theater mm-hmm. like yes, i took people same. to see a show where someone inserted a lit candle into their ass oh. and i was like this is amazing this is like performance art right yeah like we we all were watching that happen in in live time and that was more exciting than all the zoom readings i'd seen over the entire pandemic mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. it lit after it was in or was it no no lit it was already? lit and then they were like inserting it into their ass yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Very impressive. Well, who is the artist? Do you remember? Made in China. Oh, yes. what an icon. Wow. Oh, that's incredible. Made in China. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> Shout out to the Darlings Shout crew again. again. Again, some groups are getting a lot of love right now. <laughs> the Darlings deserve it, though. They do. Right? They do. They do. I think it's also, like, with, with wide, like... <laughs> drag local drag in particular feels more exciting than theater sometimes is that is an inherent connection to the audience there's like an actual like um whether it's through like shock and awe or whatever you know whatever the the method is it's like you can't go on stage as a drag performer and pretend like your audience isn't there totally and i also think drag in particular for queer folks, my connection to it is very much around how it allows us to live out fantasy, fantasies of gender, fantasies of performance, things we can't live out necessarily in everyday life, The the how heightened it is. Um, I think for me, fantasy is so integral to any queer art. And I think drag does that so beautifully, um, especially because it, it, it's so it, it happens only for a moment. And um, together we're experiencing a collective fantasy. And I think it's also worth noting that a lot of the folks who are like just tearing shit up in the drag scene are folks who would have been in theater if people hadn't been so fucking transphobic. Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. I literally, yeah, who, yeah. Who we are now giving their flowers because they've gone and carved their own paths through the drag scene. Um, but that's the only way that they've been able to even approach the theater scene because training institutions, because the culture of our industry has been so transphobic that they couldn't get through, you know, the more direct route that a lot of us have taken. 100%. Yeah, I went to theater school with Ray, Rose Butch, and yeah, the the I mean, I could go on an entire tirade about my problems of Studio 58, so don't get me started on that. That but should be a podcast. That, that could be a podcast. <laughs> Survivors of Studio 58, the podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the institutions were not supportive of them, and what I've seen that I think is so beautiful about, about Ray's work is that they've really they have incorporated some of those techniques into their drag and into uh, their performance art, um, but is now in a space that actually like encourages their creativity. And it's so beautiful to see. Um, so yeah, totally 
just 100% support what you're saying, Lily. Oh, I love I love this discussion. We ha- we do have to end, but I'd love for each of you to share where the folks, where the listeners can find you. It doesn't need to be a big social media thing, but if you do have socials, please share. Lily, how about you? How can folks keep track of your work? Sure, I'm on Instagram at Lil Rob Makes Things. L I L R O B Makes Things. Lovely. Anae, how about you? I'm also on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Anae underscore west it's very boring it's just my fucking name um (laughs) but your instagram's not boring so you make up for it (laughs) that's the hope you know um and i also have a website it's anawest.com beautiful trisha how about you uh instagram my handle is dustyfoot underscore trin t-r-i-n-h lovely well i've really really enjoyed this and i've learned things and i'm really touched to hear about all of your processes and the upcoming projects you have and I'll be looking out for you and I know the people listening will be too thanks so much thanks guys from the bottom of my heart thank you for listening to this episode of really queer voices if you enjoyed please stay in touch with me on instagram at button scott or on twitter at scotty g button This podcast has been co-curated by Faye Nass, Artistic Director of the Frank Theatre, with assistance from Joanna Garfinkel. Sound design and co-production by Michelle Cutler. Really Queer Voices is made possible with the support of Canada Council for the Arts. Wherever you're listening from, I urge you to follow the work of Vancouver-based 2S LGBTQ plus focused theatre companies, the Frank Theatre and ZZ Theatre, as well as the drag collective, The Darlings. If you're in a position to do so, please consider supporting or amplifying the work of urban Native youth, in particular their Two-Spirit Collective, an organization doing tremendous work in Vancouver's downtown east side with Indigenous Two-Spirit youth. I also encourage you to go out and see, hear, support, be challenged by, and laugh with queer art. Thank you for listening. This is the Mako mic. Yes. Okay, I can get real close in here. No, you're doing great. Okay, great. Sounds great.